Welcome to another edition of the Untoxicated Podcast. My name is Matt Salis, and today I'm going to talk about week three of the Shout Sobriety Program. If you are enrolled in the Shout Sobriety Program, I am really excited about the topics this week. I know I say that every week, but uh, I guess I only picked exciting topics for the program. If you are not enrolled in the Shout Sobriety Program, let me just um, briefly explain if, you, if you've stumbled upon this podcast because you're a regular intoxicated podcast listener or you uh, you know you just bouncing around the internet you came across us the shout sobriety program is a six-week online early sobriety program to help people get through those really difficult days when they first give up drinking alcohol um, it's all the things that I learned when I went through early sobriety all the things, the failures that I had, the, the lack of success, and then eventually the success that I had gaining my permanent sobriety. If you're interested and you'd like more information, um, maybe after you listen to this podcast episode, you'll be all jazzed up and want to join us. We'd love to have you. Check us out at shoutsobriety.com. There's information there and there's the ability for you to enroll in the program. I do want to mention it's absolutely free because we don't believe you should have to pay for your sobriety. We do uh, accept and welcome donations. It, we are a uh, fundraising organization. We do accept donations to keep the program going, but there is absolutely no charge to join the program and to find your way to sobriety. So on to the topics for today, week three. We have two topics this week. Uh, the first one is about patience. We're going to talk to you about, we, we spoke a little bit about it in, when we were talking about brain chemistry, but we're going to talk more about what it means to give our brains time to heal for, from uh, the addiction that we're trying to recover from. And then the second topic will be, uh, again, just kind of, groundbreaking is not the right word, but it's just mystifying that everyone doesn't know about this topic and, and that it isn't incorporated in every recovery program out there, but the fact is it isn't. Very few people talk about it, and the topic is recovery nutrition. What you eat can cure you. I've used that little tagline as titles to things that I've written in the past, but it's absolutely true. Um, There is a way to speed your recovery through nutrition, and we're going to talk about that. But let's first, let's start with the topic of giving ourselves time to heal, having patience in early sobriety. If we, if we make a resolve, a firm commitment to quit drinking alcohol, and that's the only thing we do, we bolster ourselves up with willpower and determination, and we don't change anything about our lives, in my experience, that is just not going to work. And I have over a half dozen failed attempts at sobriety to prove that that just doesn't work. Um, there's, a, there's a number of reasons why we need a lot more than willpower. One of them is the way society approaches alcohol versus the way society approaches other drugs that are equally addictive to alcohol. For instance, meth or heroin or opioids, other opioids besides heroin. It's not socially acceptable to take those drugs, at least not in the world that I live in. Um, I have friends that are drinkers, but they're also responsible 
they maintain jobs, they keep their house in order, most of them have families, and in those circles, drinking is, it's not just accepted, it's promoted, it's expected even. But in those circles, it's not expected to smoke uh, meth, it, that's just not part of the lifestyle, that's, that's not something you'd expect to see. Uh, heroin is not a problem. There's not a bunch of people shooting up in my neighborhood. I'm fortunate. I understand that. But the fact is, drinking early, often, all the time is a part of the culture that we live in. And again, not just celebrated, but even expected. If we go to a social occasion, there's going to be beer, wine, hard alcohol. And if we've got a history as a drinker, we're going to be expected to drink. So the... In addition to having the brain chemistry things to get over, the subconscious mind, uh, learning to uh, regenerate and retrain the way our regenerate our neurotransmitters and retrain the way our dopamine is released, we also have the societal problem of dealing with peer pressure. I mean, it sounds silly. I'm 46 years old. I'm talking about peer pressure like I'm a teenager, but it's a real thing. If you go to a party with all your friends. And for the last two decades, they've watched you drink beer with them. And then all of a sudden, you're not drinking beer. They're going to want to know what's up. So quitting alcohol as opposed to quitting other drugs, is it's just drastically different because of the societal aspect. So that societal aspect is a big deal. And I want to talk to you a little bit about it. When I was um, unsuccessful in quitting drinking, my failed attempts at sobriety, I would have that determination. I would sit there. I can remember sitting there on a Monday morning many times in my bathroom, getting ready to go to work, my sweaty, pounding head in my hands, just just so upset with myself, so full of depression, so full of shame, and also so determined that that is it. I am never drinking again. I am going to do it this time. I'm never drinking again. And at that moment, as bad as I felt about myself, I mean, I didn't want to be alive. That's how bad I felt about myself. I was just so determined and I really thought that that was enough to quit drinking. So I would go about my week, you know, early part, middle of the week, there probably wasn't too much pressure to drink. But then the weekend would roll around and if there was a social event on the calendar, I was going to go. I was going to be embarrassed and ashamed to not be drinking. I was going to have to explain to some people, yeah, you know, I, I've just taken a break or, or you know, drinking's just, it's not my friend right now. Or, man, I hit it hard last weekend and I'm not going to drink this weekend. Those are all excuses that they're lame, frankly. Um, people are going to look at you like, ugh. First of all, they're going to wonder if you have a problem that you're not admitting to. And secondly, they're going to think, come on, Matt. I mean, I've seen you drink lots of different weekends, every occasion that we have, what's going on? They're either going to dig deeper or they're going to pressure you to, oh, come on, you'll be fine. Just have a couple beers. Not everybody will. It's true when you've probably heard people say, and I'll say it too, most people that you're around, when you are drinking non-alcoholic and they are drinking alcoholic, most people are too caught up in their own world to notice or care. That's true. But your good friends are going to notice and they're going to pressure you and, 
and give you a hard time and at least have some questions and at least try to convince you to go ahead and have a beer or two or a glass of wine with them. So I can't stress this enough. My my strongest suggestion when it comes to social events and early sobriety is to to not go, to cancel plans or to decline invitations. And in my case, and as I've read and researched and talked to other people, I think this is very common. The amount of time it takes you to build up your sobriety muscles to the point where you can go to any event and feel comfortable not drinking amongst a bunch of people that are drinking, it takes a year. There's a common theme here. I say it takes a year for a lot of things. Well, in my experience and the experience that others have shared with me, that's just how long it is. That's I know that sounds miserable. That sounds like such a long period of time. But if you're someone like me and you drank for a long time, in my case, 25 years, you know, two and a half decades of drinking, making a positive change in your life that's going to take a year, it's really not that much time. And it's definitely well worth it. So what, what I recommend is that we think kind of in the scope of a year and we think about the big things that we know are coming. Regular events. Your neighbor down the street has a 4th of July party every single year. You know that invitation's coming. You've gone to it 10 years in a row. You need to prepare yourself. You need to prepare yourself to decline. The holidays, whew. The holidays, there's probably a dozen opportunities for heavy drinking, invitations you're going to receive, things you need to be prepared for. You need to go through that list of, of events that you think you're probably going to be invited to. Pick out the ones that you absolutely have to go to because I get it. There are some you can't decline. If if they are invitations from close family and it's important for family reasons, legitimate family reasons, but oh, by the way, there'll also be heavy drinking going on there. Some of those you're going to have to go to. Also, I'm sure that there are work events that you just can't decline because it's important for your career. I also know that there are work events that you can decline. You might think they're important for your career, but if you really think it through, there are work events that we can all get out of. In my case, the Indianapolis 500, I'm, I'm from just south of Indianapolis originally. I've been going to the Indianapolis 500 since I was five years old. I went with my parents for many years, then a group of friends for many years, now a different group of friends. And the group I'm with now, we've been going since... Uh, just right after college. So it's been a long time. It's important. It's my my whole family goes. My kids are friends with their kids. It's the only time of year I get to see these people. Their drinking has actually tapered off over the years. Everyone else at the Indianapolis 500 seems to be drinking like it's the last day on earth. But the people that I'm with um, don't pressure me. They respect my decision. And even though it's a party with 300,000 heavy drinkers, it's something I have to do. I cannot turn that down. So that's one that I have to leave on the calendar and I just have to deal with it. You'll have those too. But but I really, I strongly urge you to to look at what you, what you might think is a must that you go to and reconsider. I'll tell you a little story. One of the times that I tried and failed in early sobriety, I was, I want to say I was probably two weeks sober at the time. And this is the time, you can read about it on my blog, SoberAndUnashamed.com. This is the one that will have a picture of non-alcoholic beer as the header for the blog post. But for some reason, and I really can't remember my logic exactly, I decided when I quit drinking this time, I was going to become a non-alcoholic beer connoisseur and snob. 
I was going to know everything there was to know about all the different varieties of non-alcoholic beers. Now, this is probably eight years ago now, so 2011 maybe. Um, there just weren't that many out there. There were a half dozen non-alcoholic beers, all the big, you know, Coors, Bud, Bud has O'Doul's, right? Um, Miller, they all have one, and they taste as bad as, frankly, I think Coors and Bud and Miller taste. Even worse, they taste skunky. But some of the German, I think Heineken and St. Pauli girls had a non-alcoholic beer, and I was like, whoa, I'm going to get into this and become become a guru on non-alcoholic beers. I honestly don't know what I was trying to accomplish. But, so I was big into non-alcoholic beers at the time, and my next-door neighbor, who is a big-time drinker, and I know he's a big-time drinker because I've drank with him lots of times, he invited me to a Colorado Rockies baseball game with a bunch of his friends. It was one of his friend groups, guys that he's been with since high school and college, and somebody canceled last minute. I, I think they literally invited me at 4 o'clock in the afternoon for a 6 o'clock game, so it was. I just quickly jumped in the shower and off we went. Well, they, so like I mentioned, these guys are heavy drinkers, and I'm a couple weeks into sobriety, and I think I'm not going to let my sobriety get in the way. I'm still going to have fun. I'm going to have fun with these friends. I'm going to have fun because it's a baseball game. I'm going to have fun because it's a beautiful Saturday night. Nothing's getting in my way. I'm tougher than that. It was one of the most miserable experiences of my life. We didn't get to our seats before the these guys stopped at a hospitality uh, like suite area and didn't order beers. They ordered hard alcohol, mixed drinks, and I thought, oh, here we go. Um, we got to our seats. They ordered a round of beers. They ordered another round of beers. I decided my best bet was to go and find a non-alcoholic beer somewhere in the stadium. This part of the story for me is hilarious. Major League Baseball Stadium, Every when you're on the concourse, every, what, 20 yards, there's another opportunity for vending. There's another um, little little bar or restaurant thing where you can get a burger or a hot dog, and, of course, you can get a beer. I walked the entire concourse. The whole, I walked a circle all the way around where the Colorado Rockies play, and finally, at one place, I found this pathetic little display. There were about four cans of a Miller product, non-alcoholic Miller product that were available. So I ordered one and got it poured. And then my idea was I'm just going to carry this beer around all night. I'm not actually going to drink it. I'll sip on it just a little bit. But this way I look like I've got a beer so that all the people sitting around us at the Rockies game are going to think I have a beer and not think there's anything wrong with me. This is how warped our brains are in early sobriety. At least mine was and a lot of people I've talked to as well. I cared what other strangers... Now, the guys that were at the game with, my friends, they know I'm not drinking. They don't understand why I'm not drinking. But they're already four or five rounds in, and I haven't had anything to drink. They you know, they know I'm not drinking on this, this occasion. But I'm worried about the people around us that I don't know, that I've never met and I'll never see again. As they slug beers, I'm worried that they'll gonna, they're going to think something's wrong with me because I'm not. So I've got my little warm... Miller, I don't even know what they call their um, their alcohol-free beer now, but but I had one, and I sat there, and then it just got worse and worse. These guys, my friends, they're having a great time, and they didn't do anything wrong, but they're getting more and more obnoxious because that's just what happens when we drink. And by the end of the night, I was the driver. I was the designated driver because I wasn't drinking. I offered that before we left for the game. 
So I can't just bugger out of there. Another huge, huge mistake. I can't say that strongly enough. If you do have to go to a social occasion when you're in early sobriety, make sure you've got an exit plan. And let me tell you, that exit plan can be just leaving without saying goodbye to anybody. That is totally acceptable. Maybe your best friend will notice or your second best friend will notice. But most people aren't even going to notice if you just booger out without saying anything. And even if they do notice, just tell them later, I just wasn't feeling well, sorry I didn't say goodbye, and the discussion is over. Do not get yourself in a situation in early sobriety where you're with friends that are going to hit it hard and you're their ride home, so you got to stay to the end. Absolutely miserable. Uh, I, I won't give you any more details. These are good guys. They didn't do anything wrong, but they were... They were on a different planet by the end of the night from the planet I was on, and it was a bad experience. One of the things that I talk a lot about when it comes to social events where you are required to be there, say a work event or something that's really important to the family, it takes a little while to get confidence in ordering a non-alcoholic beverage if, if it's your desire to kind of blend in and not stand out like a sore thumb. That was really important to me early. And I'll tell you, when I searched the internet in early sobriety for how can I order a drink that looks like a drink but isn't a drink and then everyone will leave me alone. And that information was not to be found. So I've actually written quite a few articles, not just on my blog, but that have been published elsewhere about this, hoping to help people out so that when you're in that situation, you're at, you're at a restaurant or a bar with a work group, and all you want to do is order a drink that looks like a drink so everyone will leave you alone. How do you do it? Sounds simple. It's harder than it sounds. I remember early on, I was at a work event. I was actually standing with not my boss, but my boss's boss and chatting with him when the server came around to take my drink order. My boss's boss ordered another IPA. Sure looked delicious to me. They asked for my drink order and I said, I'll have soda water with a lime. Well, the server goes away and comes back with his beautiful amber little frothy head IPA and then hands me a 32-ounce red plastic cup with Coca-Cola on the side and three straws sticking out of the top, and that's my soda water. It was embarrassing. It was embarrassing because everyone else who's drinking looks over and says, geez, what's going on with Matt? Everyone knew me pretty well and was surprised that I didn't get the exact same thing that my boss's boss got and didn't have a beer in my hand, and it just drew attention to me. It put me off my game. This was an event where you know, I, I needed to be ready to converse with people and be on my toes and know my topic and be charming and witty and all of that kind of stuff, like a lot of social events, and I was just decimated by this plastic cup. Again, I, I, it sounds silly to me even in two and a half years of sobriety now to, to give a rip what anybody thought about that, but it's real. It's a real thing when you're in early sobriety. That's a hard situation I put myself in. So now, uh, one of the things that I recommend when you're ordering a non-alcoholic drink in a very alcoholic setting, don't apologize. I used to say, oh, I'll just have a, I'll just have a soda water with some lime, please, sorry, as though the server cared that I wasn't ordering a beer or some other alcohol. The truth is, the server's kind of your best friend. Picture yourself at a table for dinner with a bunch of other people, a bunch of friends or couples or whatever. There's 12 of you, let's say, at the table, and you're the one that's ordering a non-alcoholic beverage. That server knows that as the night goes on, 
That table is going to get more and more and more obnoxious as everyone's downing wine and beer. And you're the one person they can come to whose attitude, whose mood, whose demeanor is never going to change throughout the meal. You're actually that server's best friend. They're happy to see you. So when you order a non-alcoholic beverage, don't apologize. Don't apologize for a second. Be sure to, to order with some pride and some confidence because that server is not looking down on you. That server is glad you are there. So when another thing that I do when I order, I always say I would like soda water or seltzer. I would like soda water or seltzer with a lime in a glass, please. Make sure it's not plastic. And... The reason I do that is I, do, I want to avoid that 32-ounce red plastic Coca-Cola cup incident. But I also just like to drink out of a glass. If I'm in an adult setting, in an adult event, and I've got this 25 years of drinking history, the glass with ice, with the lime on top, little swizzle stick to mix the lime juice around, that feels adult. It doesn't, it doesn't feel alcoholic. It doesn't feel like I'm drinking or I'm doing anything wrong. It feels like I'm a big boy at the big boy table. So for me, that's important. That may or may not be important for you. A lot of people I've talked to have said, yeah, that means something to me to be drinking a beverage that makes me feel like an adult, even though it's not an adult beverage. So order that with confidence. I'd I'd like a seltzer water with lime in a glass, not in plastic. I often say, you know, like a beer pint glass would be a good glass. I try to help the server along. Because I don't, I don't want them to bring me a 9-ounce shorty glass and then I have to ask them to refill it three or four times. I want, you know, I want my beverage and I want to be able to hold it and I want to be confident and proud to have it. Uh, again, might sound silly, but believe me, for, for most of us, this stuff's important. Um, so that's pretty much what I want to say about giving ourselves time to heal. Again, I'll, I'll emphasize it is a year. It's a long time. For me anyway, it was a year. For you, it might be shorter, but be prepared for a year. Look at that social calendar. Cancel whatever you can and prepare for the things that you can't cancel. I'll give you one last tip. I, I've written about this. I believe it's okay to tell little white lies in this situation. I've gotten some blowback on that. Some people say, gosh, you're trying to quit drinking. You're trying to clean up your life. You're trying to be a better person. And you're getting, you're getting advice to lie. That doesn't sound like being a better person. But I think you've got to look. I, I'm not very much of an ends justify the means kind of a guy. Not very much at all, actually. But this is one case where I look at it and say, listen, if you've got to lie to someone and say, listen, I'm not drinking tonight because I've got a big report I've got to give in the morning. Or I've got to make a run to the airport after this party and pick up my grandmother. Or I'm chaperoning my daughter's sleepover and there's going to be a bunch of kids over and I can't drink before that. If you've got to make up something like that to get you out of drinking in a situation where you know there's going to be heavy pressure to drink, in in my opinion, that's the lesser of the evils and go get them, Tiger, because uh, if that makes you feel better, better than just saying or trying to, to start a conversation with someone about how you're no longer drinking while they're in the midst of drinking, I think I think that's legit. Um, that that reminded me one more thing about that. Try to never, my recommendation is to try to never talk to people who are drinking about not drinking while they're in the act of drinking. It rarely goes well. I've had a few instances where it did, where people just really loved me and really wanted to know what was going on. But most of the time when you talk to drinkers about the fact that you've quit drinking while they're drinking, I mean, people are a little bit self-centered. They just are. 
and they start to think that you're judging them while they're drinking. When in most cases, that's the very last thing you're doing. All you're trying to do is fly under the radar and get through the evening and people start to think you're judging them and they, they get their back up a little bit and get defensive. Well, I'm not an alcoholic. What? I didn't say you were an alcoholic. That kind of a thing. So try to avoid talking to drinkers while they're drinking about not drinking. So let me shift gears now. Let's talk about the pro-recovery diet, the pro-recovery nutrition. My good friend, Kelly Miller, she is the addiction nutritionist. Her website is theaddictionnutritionist.com, theaddictionnutritionist.com. And she is the addiction nutritionist on social media, specifically Facebook and Instagram. And she has taught me a lot about how eating the right things can help speed along your recovery, help make your recovery go more smoothly when you're recovering from addiction, when you're recovering from addiction. The basic gist is the foods that we put in our bodies, if we eat the right things, it will help regenerate the neurotransmitters such as dopamine in our brain. In addition to our dopamine and other neurotransmitters being hijacked by alcohol when we were drinking, they're also depleted. And so we need more of those guys up there. We need more of the chemicals, the neurotransmitter chemicals. And what we eat does affect that. Kelly's a lot better at explaining the details, the, the chemistry behind it, and what's, what's really going on. But let me tell you what, what I know, and that is if we hit the right things on our plate when we sit down to eat a meal, we're doing the right things and we're helping to regenerate. So what, what Kelly has taught me is we should try to stick to three meals a day. And if we eat those three meals a day, the half of our plate should be above ground vegetables. Now, I, I say specifically above ground vegetables because root vegetables such as carrots and potatoes, the root is actually like, it, it reacts almost like a sugar or a simple carbohydrate. And we talked last week about how sugars and simple carbohydrates are not good for us in early sobriety or in recovery really at all. So I'm not saying I no longer eat carrots or potatoes, but I, I don't load up on them. Um, I make them kind of a secondary item. And what I try to do for my meals is have half of my plate be above ground vegetables, carrot, or not carrots, pardon me, lettuce, spinach, a lot of bell peppers, uh, I eat a lot of broccoli, a lot of cauliflower, above-ground vegetables. A quarter of our plate can be complex carbohydrates, not simple carbs, not, not sugars, not white flour, but whole wheats, whole grains, and fruit. So a quarter of our plate should be a combination of complex carbohydrates and fruit. And then the last quarter of our plate, this is probably the most important one, this should be fat and protein. Now, I've said for years... I wish the fat that we eat was named anything other than fat because we probably wouldn't be as afraid of it. People have, I remember I went on a low-fat diet back in the late 90s and I actually lost a ton of weight on that diet, but it was not good for me. Um, be, and the reason that, that, it's, that I say we, if we called the fat that we eat something other than fat, it would be better for us is because we have for years, at least if you're in my generation, we have a, equated eating fat with getting fat. And that's just not the way it is. Fat does not make you fat. In fact, as Kelly has taught me, most of our cells in our body are made up of mostly fat. So to replenish and nourish and keep our cells healthy in our body, we have to consume fat. That's just how it goes. So that last quarter of our plate being 
a combination of fat and protein. Uh, a great source of fat and protein is from clean meat products. Again, one of the things that Kelly has taught me, I love milk, so I have a lot of dairy. The milk that we consume should be whole fat milk, whole milk. Skim milk, which I drank for years and years and years, is really just sugar water. By taking the fat out of the milk, we're taking away a, a, a nourishment that we really need, again, on the cellular level. And what's left is sugar and water in skim milk. And we know from what we've talked about in the, um, in the portion last, last week on uh, brain chemistry that a lot of sugar is really bad for us just falls in line where the alcohol left. So I drank whole milk now. It took a couple of weeks to make the transition from skim to whole milk, but I love it. One of the reasons that whole milk is so good for us, not only does it have the fat that our cells need, but it's also much more filling than skim milk. So it, along with a meal, helps us feel satisfied, and we don't so much have to eat as much, nor do we get hungry in between meals when uh, whole milk is, is what we're drinking. And then otherwise, the, the fat and protein, a good source of that is clean meat products. Uh, certainly, I eat a lot of nuts. I eat a lot of avocado. I eat other sources of fat and protein, but I, do, I don't shy away from meat. I've definitely had a vegan period in my life, and then I've had a near-vegan period, but that's no longer important to me because I've learned that a lot of that neurogen, or neurotransmitter regeneration comes from the fat and protein from meat products. And so that's no longer something that I'm afraid of. I actually look for it on a one quarter of my plate at every meal if possible. So that for me is the ideal. Half a plate of above ground vegetables, a quarter of my plate complex carbs and fruit, and a quarter of my plate fat and proteins, lots of meat products. That's the ideal. The reality is that there are times when I'm in a hurry, I'm vacationing, I'm not the one who's cooking, and I can't be as specific as I'd like to be as far as what's on my plate. So when when those instances happen and I've just got to eat on the go or take what I can get, the two things that I always, no matter what, stay away from, and I think this is realistic, this is something that I can live with and I hope that others can live with this too, I stay away from added sugars and I stay away from simple carbs, basically white flour. And I do that at all costs. Friends had us over for a barbecue a few days ago. And I had my, they, he grilled some delicious burgers. Man, was that good. And I had my burger, nice, delicious, juicy cheeseburger, no bun. And actually, the couple that was hosting, they both kind of looked at me funny when I sat down on my plate and I had a fork to eat my burger because I didn't have a bun. They looked at me funny, but the conversation was so good there was no break in the conversation for them to ask me why I wasn't eating a bun and it just kind of went by the wayside, which I, I thought that was just kind of kind of a cool thing to experience. Here I am doing something a little odd and I'm doing it because of my sobriety and even though I saw two people that wanted to ask me about it, they never got around to it. It just wasn't important enough to come back around to it. So um, that that's something that in reality out there in the big bad world you can do. Lots of people push away from dessert. It's not that hard to turn, I mean, it might be hard for you personally. Um, giving up a sugar addiction is its not quite as hard as giving up alcohol, but it's up there. It's a difficult thing. But once you've gotten the, the added sugars out of your diet, 
it's not that hard to continue. It's not that hard to maintain. You can do it societally. You can you can avoid sugar. And I mean, there's a dozen diets out there right now that are fad diets that are super popular that avoid added sugar. So there's lots of people avoiding added sugar. That's not a hard thing. That's not a hard thing to do. One more thing I want to mention about the pro recovery nutrition and specifically about avoiding added sugars. It flies in the face of what we have been taught in addiction recovery for as long as I'm aware that we've talked about addiction recovery. The term harm reduction is is commonly used and people are still being, I mean, therapists today that are being trained to do addiction recovery therapy, they're being trained today about harm reduction. And the idea of harm reduction is if you that craving comes along for alcohol, don't drink the alcohol, do whatever it takes to avoid the alcohol. And hey, one of the things you can do to, to curb that craving is to get a big bowl of ice cream or to get a piece of cake or to stop by one of my friends who does addiction recovery therapy. He recommends stopping by Dairy Queen and getting a blizzard. So that's been the recommendation for going back as, as far as the recommendation goes. And while it does make the craving go away temporarily, in the long run, it keeps the cravings coming back because injecting that sugar into your system when you feel a craving, your body says, yes, thank you. That's just like injecting the alcohol into my system. So I'm going to bring that craving back around tomorrow and try to get me some more of that delicious sugar. So taking the added sugars out of your diet, not only is there not a place for it on your plate with a half quarter quarter that we discussed of pro recovery items, but it's actually harmful. We call it harm reduction. It's true. I'd rather see a person that's trying to get sober, uh, have a blizzard than have a glass of scotch, but just barely. The blizzard is not doing you any favors. The quicker you can beat that sugar addiction, the quicker you can help the cravings not only for sugar go away, but the cravings for alcohol as well. It's a little bit confusing, but I hope I'm making some sense of it. I also want to mention, I've mentioned it several times throughout the program, but sleep. Sleep is so important. I used to be able to get away with crappy sleep, less sleep than necessary, and as long as I could make it to cocktail hour at night and get a little jolt of energy from my first drink, then I was good to go. That is no longer an option for me. And the only the only thing that makes up for sleep is sleep itself. So I've just got to find a way to get myself seven or eight hours of sleep a night. It also really helps with the, the nutrition plan. If I'm getting good sleep, it's much, much easier for me to choose broccoli over a bowl of ice cream. So eating right helps with uh, recovery from addiction and sleep helps with eating right. It all goes together. Super, super important. So that's those are the topics for this week. I hope you enjoy the reading and the writing and the family work. Don't forget about the, the Facebook uh, group, private group that we have set up to bounce questions off of each other. Also, you've got my email if you're part of the Shout Sobriety program, and you've got my phone number. Happy to communicate by text, and I'm looking forward to our weekly call. Again, if you have questions, if you've stumbled across this and you want to know more about Shout Sobriety, the website is shoutsobriety.com, and you can get information and even enroll. And really, from that that link, you you can even donate to the program if it's something you feel like supporting financially. 
Again, my name is Matt Salis. This has been the week three discussion from the Shout Sobriety program on the Untoxicated podcast. And I look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks for listening.